I believe systems ago. I believe systems ago. Butterscotch shenanigans. Warning. Anything can happen on this show. Profanity and bad advice are guaranteed, so this show should not be listened to by anyone. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 50 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth. I'm Adam. And I'm Sam. And today is May 17th, 2016. And today What's is going also on? the day where you might have noticed that the entire intro to this whole podcast just felt different. What are we doing? Changing things up on episode 50. Yeah, well, we realized something important, which is if we put the warning after the intro... Then I don't get to then, say fuck whenever I want, which is yeah. really... Not I mean, is that even is that even living? No. Really? Yeah. Um, so let's let's right get right into the meat of today's topic, which is that Adam can't see things in his mind. Wait, is this the whole topic for for the <laughs> it, entirety it, of the thing? It will shockingly become so. I think. Yeah. Interesting. So let's let's yeah. hear about it. So, long story short, uh, we were we were forwarded an article by a scientist man, or I guess about a scientist man who did this study where they found they were asking people about their ability to picture images in their head. And so the idea was that you you end up at the end of the study, kind of like a personality test or something, where you answer a bunch of these questions and they give you, of course, a score of your what you would classify as your ability to uh, actually mentally prepare an image for yourself to look at. The example they gave, I believe, in the article was about being able to picture a sunset. And then now I want you to add a cloud floating in front of that sunset and then a rainbow arcing out of the cloud and going down into a Ooh. dragon's mouth that then eats the sun, etc. And so they go through this process. It's pretty elaborate. It, it ends up being an LSD trip, actually, as it turns out. Yeah. Um, but so they go through this whole process and they, they were very confused because they had, they did this with quite a few people and they found that some people were self-reporting that they don't, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see a thing in their mind's eye. And Adam, as it turns out, is one of those people. I'm one of those people. There's What's like, the word? Did they give you, they give you a word for your, uh, what was it? For your uh, condition. I think, I think you, I think they call Aphantasia. it. Aphantasia. Oh, I was going to say not being able to see things in your mind person, but that. Yeah, it doesn't as, have I think it's a called good a, medical ring to it that yeah. is required. Aphantasia is essentially the inability to fantasize, so to speak. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, you, you can't you can't conjure images of anything in your mind, which is interesting because it also explains a lot about Adam's general memory problems. Yeah, people always which, gave me shit for the entirety of my <laughs> life because they were like, you can't remember anything. And I'm like, I know this, but I don't know. How are you guys remembering yeah, stuff? Yeah, I, so I didn't understand why. <laughs> Why everybody else was just remembering things all the time. Like, as far as I'm concerned, my life has only existed since this very moment, which means when I started that sentence, that's already a part of my life that no longer exists. But you do remember facts extremely well. I remember lots of facts, uh, but but I think it's because I have no choice. Like, it's the only way I can, re I can piece together the world and my history is by a long list of facts. And so I'm pretty good at, at stringing those things together and keeping them in my brain when I choose to. Well, so here's a question for you, because I think this is, it's a super weird thing. And the reality is that like 49 out of every 50 people who listen to this episode will be like, what? I can make pictures in my brain. I don't get it. What's the yeah, problem? What does that even mean? So well, what does I mean? think the, well, here's the, the, the most concise and weirdest example of this 
is, so I've been with my wife for, for a decade, but if we were to sit down like at a restaurant right across the table, each other, and if I were to look right into her eyeballs and then close my eyes, I can no longer, like I have no picture of her face in my mind at all. I don't, I can't, I can't see what she looks like or anything or anything, <laughs> in the, in the, I mean, literally anything in the entire room. Um, and in fact, like moving around in the world, it's like, and I, and I didn't really, it, you can think of it actually like in video games where the only part of the world that exists is the part that you can see because the rest has to be destroyed behind you to conserve memory. Right. So for me, it's the same way. Like when I, when I blink, the world is destroyed for a moment and then I open my eyes again <laughs> and there it is recreated from, from nothing. Right. But you know, if things Weird. move, you like, you know, right. If yeah, the but picture so, like, so I still kind of know, well, it depends on how much it's changed. So, because I mean, so, cause you know, when, you know, when you open your eyes that Jenny is still Jenny that you're, you're, you're yeah, yeah so like I'm never like I know what she looks like so I'm never surprised when I see my wife right and if if somebody who looked an awful lot like her stood beside her I'd still know which one was my wife so like I'm not surprised <laughs> when I good. see stuff like I know what it like my brain knows what it looks like but it can't it can't show me what a thing looks like what if she were replaced while you blinked by an evil twin who had a, just a small mole on her I, upper lip uh, would you oh if it was on her like I would notice that um it would have to be, but there are lots of other things that I absolutely wouldn't remember. So, like, uh, if if her hair was suddenly parted on the opposite side, for example, <gasps> I wouldn't notice. It's a clear sign of being evil. <laughs> I know exactly because she becomes a mirror, a, a mirror image, <laughs> right? the evil, the evil mirror image. Uh, yeah. So it's not about it's not about being unable to remember things. It's about at will being unable to summon an image. Yeah, and it's and it's so impossible because it's not even just like that the image fades or something like that. It's just there literally isn't one. So if, if I just close my eyes right now, I literally can't picture anything that's in front of me. I know what's there. Like when I open them up again, again, I'm not surprised at what I see, right? Everything is where I expect. Um, but uh, but it is the case that, that the world around me, I mostly kind of don't really know what's there. And I never really understood why that was the case. Like I, I can never remember where I put things. Uh, uh, or what's in drawers and cabinets and the refrigerator and whatever. But when I open those things, I automatically reach for the right spot where a thing would be as long as it's consistently kept in the same spot. So I'm wondering, though, because this because it's an interesting problem, right? Because uh, most people know that there's there's basically two modes. There's I mean, to simplify, there's basically two modes that your brain has. One is your your conscious one and one is your subconscious one, right? And the truth of the matter is that your conscious brain, the thing that sort of is you on a large basis that feels like it's you, uh, is being constantly being fed information by your your unconscious part. And I'm wondering because because the reality is you know what Jenny looks like. You do. Your brain yeah. knows. But for you some do reason, somehow have a model of that. Yeah, you do. There's, there's but for some reason you don't get to touch it. You're like your yeah. subconscious is like, nah, man, I'm keeping these. <laughs> right. I'm keeping these for me. This is for me and not for you. Also, all those landmarks that you needed when you were traveling the other day. Nah, I got those on lock in here. You could just yeah. think about them as a list. You of just you just memorize a set of steps instead. Yeah, I have to I'm memorize. Like, I have to memorize paths to get places. But it's even like with with landmarks and stuff. Um, again, people will give me shit because if I were to drive on you know some route in some direction if i were to drive if i were to drive that route every day for a year and then for the first time in that year now turn around and try to take the opposite of that exact same path the whole thing would look impossibly different to me because because <laughs> my my brain hasn't like my brain hasn't taken like pictures that it can then kind of like reorient so that now i know what's expected to be where in the opposite direction you know it just looks like a completely foreign
foreign landscape. And I've, and so I get lost really easily because I don't recognize landmarks unless they're just literally in exactly the same position that my brain expects them to be. <laughs> what I think is the most amazing thing about all this is in learning about this, it, se- it seems like people who have this condition, because this is a new discovery, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Like as that, of a week that this ago. is a thing. And even though people who have this condition uh, have been among us forever. They've been walking among us. And, Just and like lizard people. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's possible that they are lizard people. Just like Ted Cruz. Um, Adam. But, no, but what's, a, what's amazing is <laughs> because this is something that's completely internal, then people with aphantasia have always just assumed that when somebody says, picture in your mind this scene – they always thought it was metaphorical. Yeah, I mean, I'm still not, convinced like, not, it's metaphorical because I can't, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine perceiving something in my mind because that would require perceiving something in my mind. Right, and there's nothing in there, and there's nothing in there. So <laughs> I, I have, I have no way to even think about what it would be like to be able to do that. Yeah, well, and then so, of course on the flip side of it, the 49 and 50 people who don't have this, this situation uh just have, it never occurred to anybody that this would be a thing that you couldn't do yeah so i wonder that what weird, other weird. what other things fall into this category right because there must be other stuff well, that I mean, we all just assume that everybody can do but really i think it's probably like most of the stuff that you experience right you just assume that like there's there's always a large assumption that other people and this is part of the large thing about learning empathy is the realization that most people are feeling completely different things from you in all actuality even though for some reason you tend to just like project yourself all over on every Everybody's business, right? Yeah, but then uh, not only that, they the way that they perceive the world is just totally different. I mean, the whole right, idea like, of like uh, like in co- the colorblind situation, where where we say things like as as me as a person who sees in three colors. I can say something like, isn't it weird that a person who can only see two colors can't see what I call white? Because white is made out of three colors, right? Uh, when that doesn't even actually make sense as a thing to say. Because... <laughs> Because that's true in a that's true in like a weird kind of mathy way, I guess. But the fact is that we just literally perceive totally different things about the world. Like the, the what's even weirder is, is that different. it could technically be. I mean, it's possible to also see ultraviolet and infrared and whatever. And or we never sit around right? and be like, yeah, we never sit around and go. It's so weird that we just can't see X rays. You know? <laughs> right, like, it's crazy. But it is kind of weird. Well, it's not that weird because if we were looking at <laughs> X-rays, we would just go blind as a consequence. Uh, unless we were really well equipped. But I guess what, what other things do you guys think fall in this category? Because I know, and also the, the funny thing is that this has happened to Adam before, where something from his childhood or or early years that everyone sort of like was picking on him before turned out to be a serious medical thing at the end of the day. <laughs> the, yeah, the other of which true. was his freaking eye, which growing up, Adam was always rubbing his eye. And mom and dad yeah. were like, would you, would you stop it? <laughs> They called, it make, they called it making faces. They were like, stop making faces. Because Adam's always just rubbing his fist in his eye socket because it hurt. And yeah. then he always got migraines. And everyone's like, just give him some coffee and call it good. And we all know from a few episodes how that turned out that one time. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's a sort of thing it's where, dark like, path. as it turned out, in his college years, from reading books a bunch of times, Adam started going cross-eyed, right? Well, I was going cross-eyed. I mean, I was cross-eyed the whole time. It was just mild enough, in my, in my, and I was physiologically capable of uncrossing my eyes enough that it was, it was just fairly subtle, right? So, like, if somebody was looking at me, it would look like I was looking straight. But in reality, I was constantly expending energy to try to keep my eyes uncrossed. 
You were flexing your eye biceps. Yeah, literally constantly. My <laughs> eye biceps were or constantly biceps, if you will. Yeah, and the consequence of that was just eventually my my eye my eye biceps just got tired. They were like, "Fuck this! I don't want to I don't want to do this anymore." So when I was in high school, they just decided to stop. And so if I if I was like looking a little bit off off center, they would just literally give up and let my eye f- come in. And then my brain would ignore everything that was coming in from that eye. So I didn't know that I was cross-eyed because I was only seeing out of one eyeball. My brain just filled in the rest, <laughs> right? Because uh, that's Weird. what brains do. And so my brain didn't even alert me to the fact that it was purposely <laughs> making me blind in one eye. And uh, and yeah, then the rest basically all fell out from this there. Is an, was, again, this is a situation of your brain being like, dude, I got this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which Don't is, worry which is, I mean, that's helpful if you're back in like caveman times where there's nothing you can do about the situation. Um, but in modern times, had my brain been like, "Hey, by the way, uh, you're you're blind in this eye right now," then I could be like, "Oh, I should maybe go visit a modern eyeball specialist <laughs> of some form and get this addressed," which I then ended up doing by having surgery to correct the, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And and, and the thing is, it's still a thing that bothers me now. But it only bothers me now because I like I know what it is. I know exactly what it is that's happening. I can feel it happening because I'm now aware of it, which in some ways is worse. And actually, this whole like this whole awareness that I can't, that I can't form images thing. It's pissing you uh, off. Well, now that I'm aware of it, it's 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 something that I can't I can't not notice. I mean, for example, uh, when my wife and I were looking at houses in St. Louis, since we're going to be moving there. Um, I became very aware suddenly that anytime <laughs> I walked into a new room, I just, because I wasn't familiar with it, I hadn't memorized where stuff was yet, that I would walk through a door and then literally have no idea what was behind me or where I was in the, in the space of the, of the house. Because my, I hadn't yet, I hadn't experienced it enough to like map out the world in some sort of a model in my brain. And I had no visual perception of where I had just been. Does this cause in you any sort of anxiety? Because like I, I feel like kidnapping you <laughs> and just and like putting you in a in well, a so structure does, with shifting walls and doors. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that would suck for anybody. It would, I know, for anybody. it would suck especially more for Adam. But here's yeah. the thing: it actually, in some ways, it doesn't. In some ways, it doesn't. Right? Because because I I had to deal with this literally my entire life. That just not actually having any idea what was around me. Any any time I go outside of my normal environment, and as a consequence, my brain has clearly found lots of ways to deal with this without ever alerting me to this fact. That wait. That I question it was a problem huh. i have a, is there a potential strength in this so like if i go out if i watch a scary movie or like read a scary story even and then i'm and then the room's dark i'm like i can i could count the number of teeth on the beasts that are coming at me from the closet like is it yeah your your brain starts conjuring up all kinds of horrifying images of what <laughs> yeah might are you be in the does that not happen to you uh it does but not in, in really an image sense it's more of like uh it's a, a fear of feels? the events that could happen Right. So it's like mm. a it's like a fear of the pain that could happen to be if a mini teeth monster happened to exist. And but was can in you the can you see it's probably a dumb question. Can you see the <laughs> can you see the event? Like, do you see your own blood splattered on the ceiling <laughs> or is it just that no, you're like, I mean, no, I don't. Like, there would be blood splatters. Yeah, it's more like it's more like <laughs> that. Or it's like it's like imagining the feeling of being eaten alive. Right. Uh, much more so than like seeing it happen, which obviously also mm. wouldn't be very pleasant. Is this uh, why sometimes when I describe like a creature or something that I want to make, you just kind of look at me? Dude, I just, I totally ignore the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do something like this and Adam's like, uh, my, answer, uh, my answer is always, that sounds fine. And then 
And then it's not until because I get it, to look at the picture that I can actually make a decision about it. Because it sounds fine. <laughs> the sound of it is the only thing you can. Yeah. Well, this was the interesting about. thing is is when I was reading, I was reading another account of some guy who he's he's actually an author who realized that he has the same thing. And and somebody was asking him. They were like, because in his books he's very descriptive about stuff. And they were really confused by this. And he's like, he's like, well, I still know what kinds of things go places, right? He's like, I can just, I can, I can conjure up a place just as well as anybody else can. He's like, I'm not, I don't picture it in my brain when I do it. You can just, but just I can still, yeah, stuff. I can still invent and describe a, a space. Um, and he's like, and I just do it because that's how everybody writes. Like, he's like, as far as I'm concerned, that's, that was a writing style. He's like, I didn't really, he didn't, uh, he didn't know as, as the author that when people are reading his work, they're actually converting what he's written into imagery in their minds. Um, <laughs> and for him, when he reads, and then he described this and I was like, oh, this is exactly how I read, right? <laughs> when he reads uh, and gets to those parts of books that describe the shit out of stuff, he just skims through it. And this is how this is how I read too. Like I, I when I'm reading, I, I skip nearly all content that isn't about events and like dialogue and, you know, and people doing stuff. Hmm. Because I, like if, if, you know, if you were to tell me what a character looks like in the beginning, I have literally no idea yeah, then in the next page, what you just described that character to look like, except for in the vague senses, or unless I buckle down and really try to memorize the details. So I guess um, the, the question I have is, is is it the case that something like this is is a genuine deficiency in that in that it is, say, literally impossible, like you're missing some connection or something, for example, to be able to push imagery into your conscious mind, which is basically what's supposed to be happening. Um, is it that you're like missing a circuit or is it the case that, that this is somehow your brain like went skill about or something? Yeah. It's a skill that your brain went about just like didn't use. And therefore you literally don't have the capacity to do it, but it's a trainable thing. I have no, idea. it's one of those things that it seems like given how important imagery is to being able to like, to remember stuff and to understand where you are and to accomplish all kinds of things. It seems like it's one of those things that if you could do it, your brain would absolutely be doing it all the time. Hmm. And maybe yeah, I don't know. True, I don't know I don't how know, you. But. I don't know how you would conceivably force yourself to do it. Because for for everybody else, it just happens. You know. Yeah. Like you're not, <laughs> right. Right. You, like, Even if when, it happens when somebody, like poorly, that's one. Well, thing, there's but. a uh, there's a book called "Don't Think of an Elephant." And it's all about how you can basically force people to think about things by even by telling them not to think of things. Wait, Adam, when uh, someone says don't think of an elephant, do you just think of the word elephant? No, the I mean, concept. I, was it? It's not the same as like just thinking in words or something. Because I still think in, I guess I would call it objects. So like when you say picture an elephant, what I get is a sort of like vague sense of the object of an elephant. Like not the word uh, and not a picture of it, but sort of like you can think of it as like a the essence. It's of well, it's like a sketchy outline of a like suddenly like kind of flashing through it a whole bunch of different perspectives of what an elephant is like, right? So like I get mm. so like what I get is a sort of flash of like a sense of shape and and color and like the noise that comes from an elephant, you know, like in the size, like so it's sort of like a, it's almost a series of descriptors kind of captured in in a, like a, flip a vague in a vague object. Really, from a programming perspective, right? Where where there's a huge difference between when you're like when you're making a video game, you describe an object using code, and and that description is enough to then cast a character onto the screen for somebody to look at. Um, so to me, the difference is basically having, having the mind be the monitor versus being the code. Exactly. So having having access to the object code versus having 
access to the thing that it projects. And and it seems that I only have access to that. So so I my guess is that that I have kind of like the same functionality as anybody else, um, except that I can't cast that part. But in terms of being able to like the way I think about stuff and so on, it has the same underlying part, right. I think, probably. Uh, but I don't have that other level. Interesting. Yeah. So where were you going with the elephant thing? I don't remember. <laughs> Unlike elephants that can remember everything. Well, I think I, right. so I've been reading this book called Peak which just came out and was pointed out uh, via the Freakonomics podcast, which Racing for the Finish, one of our Scotch ID members, had, had suggested we listen to. Um, and the whole book is about it's, about, it's written by the scientist and a scientist writer about uh, the science of expertise and what, what we're slowly starting to learn about how people get better at stuff. And the reason I'm reading this, of course, is, is going back to some of our other podcasts, is that I've been trying to train up my art capability. So one interesting thing from this book that I read was that they actually, they literally only recently found out sort of in a scientific fashion. And this surprised the shit out of me to learn this actually. As in like 30 years ago, it was largely believed that you kind of were what you were. And if you couldn't do art or something, well, too bad. You just, that's not your thing. <laughs> and there's the, the one. Was that example, really believed or was that like the, was that the common sense that that was the, the public has yeah. or that this, or that scientists had? Uh, it was, it was basically both. Okay. Supposedly. Wasn't it also the case that 40 years ago or 50 years ago, doctors advised people to avoid exercise and smoke more? (laughs) We can just agree that the world was a dumber place. It was a rough time. (laughs) Nobody knew anything. Uh, But so the first study that this guy did was back in the 70s that sort of caused a bit of a, a ruckus was that there's this there's large idea that you have in working memory capacity, right? Working memory for most people is sort of the, the mental workbench you have for handling memories or handling thoughts. So for most people, you can handle uh, about seven things. For some reason, it's just magic, magic number seven. Uh, but it goes all it goes from between four and nine, depending on uh, sort of how flexible your brain is. And this is directly correlated, like working memory capacity is directly correlated with perceived overall intelligence, because the more stuff you can cram in at once, usually the more insights you can raise, the more uh, parallels you can draw, that sort of thing. So this guy had this uh, question where the, the idea was that in no time in scientific history prior to this guy's thing, had anyone be, been able to memorize a string of digits, supposedly, and this is again, just blowing my mind, that... Uh, in a scientific research paper that was more than 10 uh, using this practice technique where they would list out a digit one at a time. And then after the guy was done listing all the digits, you'd have to repeat them back. So he would, and, and that's in a one second interval. So he'd say like one, four, seven, one, two, whatever the hell. And you just keep going. And literally like up until this point, they were convinced that the maximum capacity for any human ever was uh, seven things because no one really had gotten much beyond that. And so he sat down with this, they recruited a student, they sat down and then every day or every other day, the student would come in for an hour and they would practice. And so he would read out a list of digits and then the student would have to try to match them. And for, for the a first whole hour, for a whole hour and for the first four days, uh, like that the case, tedious the guy, was, yeah, <laughs> the guy was super excited. He was like a runner. He's very, you know, a very motivated dude. He's super excited. And then by the fourth day, and this is supposed to be an experiment that lasted like three months. By the fourth day, uh, he had made no progress. He was still stuck, stuck at seven. And he was like, I just, I don't see how this is going to go anywhere. And the guy's like, I just need you to just keep coming back. Like, I swear to God, I think it'll work. And so the guy starts developing his own sort of mnemonic devices in the background, right? The runner does, the, the student. The, on the Friday, he came in and got nine. And they were like, huh. And then the experiment just kept going on and on and on. And every time he hit one of these walls at like 20 numbers, for example, then after a few practice sessions, he would figure out some other way to hold the information mentally. 
And by the time they were done, after two years, he could do 81 digits. <laughs> so that's a minute. That's like a minute and a half of someone every second just telling you a number and then him just recounting it perfectly afterward. And right. the thing that blew everyone's mind about it was the fact that the guy was able to improve, right? Because up until then, it was this idea. It was like, you have your brain, you have, and that's just what it is. And but so, he didn't actually improve at memorizing numbers. He developed a, an encoding scheme that his mind was good at using memory for, right? Yeah. Isn't right. That, that's the key to this whole thing is that is that memorizing shit like a bunch of numbers is very hard because we don't have, you can't, the only image you have of it is sort of equivalent to the thing, right? So like. Yeah, it's an abstract concept. It's an abstract concept. So if you want to memorize a string of numbers, then it becomes increasingly difficult because none of them mean anything. Right. But brains are really good at remembering certain things. And so if you encode those numbers into things that your brain's good at remembering. Yeah. And put those in sequence instead. Yeah. I mean, that's like the main way that people do this, right? Well, yeah, that's the way that the entire field of mnemonics works, right? Which is that what you do. So the problem is that your short term memory, that working memory is so limited that essentially what you have to do is train your brain to be able to really rapidly and with a good strategy, actually just store things directly in the long term memory. And that's what you're able to do because short term memory literally doesn't last more than a couple seconds. And so and that's why you have to like if you're trying to remember a phone number or something that you just got, you have to repeat it under your breath, uh, sub vocalization. So you always repeat it constantly until you get to a place where you can write it down because if you stop refreshing it like once it'll go away <laughs> because your short term because if bad. if one thing crowds out one of those digits yeah, in your short term memory <laughs> Yeah. You've lost the whole number. But this, this is my interesting point getting to your inability to see pictures, the question there. Because I'm wondering, like, is that is that an inborn phenomenon or is that just because of some sort of quirk of however it was that your brain decided to think about things early on that sort of reinforced it constantly? Or is there actually, you know, a fuse missing, so to speak? I mean, who knows? But my guess would be, again, given the sort of utility of being able to image stuff, presumably since 90, 98 out of 100 people could do it. Uh, my no my guess is that, that what I have, what my brain brain has done is kind of the same thing that this this kid's brain did for memorizing numbers, which was because it didn't have access to that way of of memorizing stuff of like, you know, because like I don't I don't I literally don't remember. I don't have imagery of like birthday parties or, you know, or major events and that kind of stuff that I can refresh in my mind to like to reminisce upon. Mm hmm. But I know that events happen, and so what I've memorized is, is the events and, and miscellaneous facts about those events. Hmm. And and so, it, I mean, I think what my brain has done is basically just given up on, or not given up, but basically instead of trying to use imagery to do stuff, it's just had to come up with entirely different encoding mechanisms to be able to remember things than what right. other people use. And so presumably what that means is that my way of approaching the world and remembering stuff about the world is probably totally different than somebody else's because where somebody else... Uh, uh, has a system in place already that does that on their behalf because their brain is designed to make long-term storage of images an easy task. And I don't have that. So I have to do the equivalent of having some sort of a mnemonic device uh, to like just for, for memorizing everything. numbers, but I have to have right. it for everything. So I don't know what it is because my brain's just doing it, right? But presumably yeah, what that means is that my brain actually has a totally different approach than most people to retaining information. And although for a large part, that's been to not retain it at all. Right. And, and and so it basically, which actually makes sense, right? Because if it's if it takes a lot of effort for me to remember stuff, then, then of course my brain's only going to do that for stuff that's really important because uh, otherwise why expend the effort? And then because of the short-term memory problem, it would have to actively prevent me from being able to pay attention to anything else to be able to remember most stuff. Hmm. Um, so I think, so I think what, what that means is I've gotten pretty good when I need to remember things at, at very quickly converting those into long-term storage. Uh, but I've also gotten really good 
at just ignoring most things and not remembering them. They just right. like because you don't want to cloud slip it. right by because yeah, I don't because I don't need it. And and as a consequence, I'm just very comfortable living with very few things. So I don't know what things I have anyway, <laughs> right? So like I have a, <laughs> I have a yeah, very, we always we always joke about how when Adam comes up to visit St. Louis, he brings a backpack and about three quarters of his wardrobe and all of his worldly belongings are in that backpack. Yeah, <laughs> and I only barely know what's in that backpack. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite part. You open it, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm never surprised at what's that. in there, but I don't know what's in there necessarily. There was this I, other piece yeah. in that book where he was talking about uh, nearsightedness, and this is a huge problem for people like over the age of 50. Like, uh, I think it's more than half people over the age of 50 end up having to get some sort of reading glasses or something like that. And we know this with our parents that are always squinting to read stuff, or if you're in a uh, restaurant or something, they got they got to get their glasses or like shove the menu in their face. Um, and the problem is that your is that basically that your your cornea sort of bends as you get older. It loses some of its focal capability, and that really affects your nearsightedness. You so mean there's your lens. Yeah, your lens. Sorry. Um, and so the the issue here is that that so that's actually a structural defect, right? And you can't repair that unless you go in and cut it or do something else to it. But these researchers had a question after they read this one of these picture these uh, papers by this guy, where they said, "What if?" What if you could train your brain to just decode the information better? So in other words, given the same blurry image, could you just train your brain to, to read blurs instead of letters? Yeah. <laughs> and the, I guess what the answer is. It's fuck yeah. probably yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah, you can't. So they brought but all these. only work to an extent because if it's too, it's the same thing as like when you're watching CSI and they, yeah, that's you know, exactly yeah, that's exactly yeah. good. You train your brain to deblur things, but your brain is way better at it than a computer is once you train it, right? So so yeah, you but they do this thing where they keep on pushing it, you know, slightly blurrier, slightly blurrier, so you can you basically just train yourself to recognize what a blurry A at various degrees looks like, right? <laughs> so and then you can just read. These people didn't even need their glasses anymore. They were seeing the same image, but they're brain was interpreting it differently right so they still couldn't really see but they could read <laughs> yeah technically they couldn't see any better than before but, but they probably a lot of that is because well it's, well it's probably not even that either actually it's because for humans uh you know what we would actually and of course robots could do this too if we programmed it to do it but, but i mean all of all the way that we understand the world is actually statistical when your brain's trying to recognize a thing it actually is a it's a probabilistic model it puts on top of stuff right so if you're given a bunch of blurry letters if they're a little blurry then for any individual letter by itself or group of letters if they're random for each one of those letters then your brain has to basically map probabilistically what the blurry thing is based on what it knows blurry versions of all the letters look like right as it gets blurrier it's going to get worse and worse at that but in the real world scenario where you're reading stuff it actually has a lot more information than just that well, one you got context because you you've yeah. got context right and so you can now look at a blurry word and a blurry word is going to be a hell of a lot easier to for your brain to map uh, to a series of letters. Um, and it won't actually, it'll map it directly to a word, right? And so, so yeah, so it totally makes sense that if you get better and better at recognizing words, then it, it, as they get blurrier, then having all that that contextual information available would make brains really able to yeah. do that. Well, there's also, there's been plenty of studies that show that words that are, that have an interesting shape, like if you, if you were to draw an outline around the whole word, and Adam and I were talking about this with regards to the node.js which is yeah. a web tech, their logo, for some reason, it just looks really good. It's just the Great. word, yeah. but it looks really good. And it's actually because, I can't remember what the word is for this uh, this concept, but the shape of the whole, like the outline that the word itself makes, if you were to trace around it, is pleasing for some reason. <laughs> so it's, it's a way easier thing to learn. You know, it's a way easier thing to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, I wanted to get into this because Seth had mentioned this idea about about uh, like achieving your dreams in 30 minutes a day. Yeah, this is something that dri- it drives me crazy. Um <clears throat> 
is you often hear people talking about things that they want to achieve in their life. Big things, right? I want to I want to be in a rock band or I want to become a, a good painter or whatever. I want to write a novel, right? And there's this, there's this figure that always gets thrown around, which I think is probably a pretty reliable idea that you can be said to have become an expert in something once you've put at least 10,000 hours into that thing. Well, I think by a reliable idea, you just mean you need a fuckload of hours. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And 10,000 is a pretty it's good... It's, it's, but it's arbitrary. A of, it's a lot of hours. If you put 10,000 hours into something, you've at least put in enough time to know what you don't know, which... Uh, you've, you've put enough time to learn a lot of stuff to get pretty good at something and to have enough of an understanding of the thing that you also understand the things you don't understand, if that makes sense. Um, so, uh, I, I don't know. I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about this idea of thinking that, that if you really have a goal like that, you know, to, to become a master at one of these things that you can just, you know, do it on the side. And I'm just wondering what you guys think about this, because if you actually plot it out time-wise, if you put in 30 minutes a day to achieving your dreams, it will take you 54 years to reach the 10,000-hour mark. Yeah. If you put in eight hours a day, it'll only take you three and a half years. Do you guys, yeah. I mean, do you think this is possible? It's, if somebody really wants to do so, so I've been wanting to learn electronics and how to build robots, basically. Um, and I have been putting basically no time into it so it's nothing more than sort of like a a like foggy kind of a wish right now a pipe dream if you will yeah uh but if i if i were to sit down and put in you know four hours every weekday night and you know 10 plus hours every weekend uh then suddenly i'd be rapidly accelerating toward having a really strong understanding of all this stuff right but at 30 minutes a day i mean what the hell is this possible do you think <laughs> well I, I mean i think there's there's a number of things here i think one of them is that is a question of what your what your dreams are. So, for example, like if I wanted to uh, sharpen my ability to see, for example, using the nearsightedness thing, uh, something like that, you can train in like thirty minutes a day for a while. Because something like that, uh, there's a, like there's there's a difference in complexity of of a thing. I guess is is a big piece of it. So part of the reason why games are such an opaque thing to get into making is because there's so many damn elements that you can start attacking it from. You can attack from the programming side. And even when you just say that, now you're digging into a, like that's a whole big rat's nest to figure out, right? Um, or the art side or whatever else. But something like a really, really specific skill, I feel like you can actually develop it really rapidly. So, for example, take like meditation as a, maybe an easy. Well, you example. can get you can get decent at it really rapidly. Yeah, but I think that's that's the yeah. thing is you got you have to determine between the things because like I have a list of things that I my goal is basically to be able to do functionally, right? Not so to, to be, be able an to, expert at. Yeah, to be able to get uh, decent at. And those are things that I do put like thirty minutes a day into ish. So that's running, uh, maybe meditating. It used to be. Um, other things like that where I'm like, I just want to get, I just want to get better at this. So I have a, so I'm functional. So I can go out and throw a ball to my friends that it doesn't go three feet and hit the ground, you know? Um, so there's certain things like that. But if you're talking about like the dream stuff for most people, uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you're, if you're not able to really, cause those are, those tend to be more complicated. You know, I, I don't know anybody whose dream is to be able to like throw a baseball 50 yards, for example, as like an easier one. Um, but if you're talking about the problem with a dream is usually that it's actually a ton of different parts put together and that the time it takes to do any one of those pieces is is quite large in order to, to achieve some level of good enough or mastery over it and so it can get to it can very, get very hard to when you look at the dream of like opening up a successful game studio for example um it's really hard to denote what those different parts are and then put time towards those in an appropriate way so i think i mean i think it's 
I think you can still work toward your dreams in 30 minutes a day. Certainly, you can work towards them. Um, will you achieve them in a reasonable time frame? Like, no. You know, absolutely <laughs> not. But, but I think that's something you can recognize. Nope. Like some, sometimes life just doesn't permit you to do a thing for a while. Uh, and that's just kind of, if, if you get 30 minutes in a day and the total amount of like spare time you have in a day is 45 minutes or something, then like, you know, kudos to you for plugging away at the thing you're trying to do. Should you also maybe put those extra 15 minutes into figuring out how to get more time for that? Yes. You know, yes, because it's not going to go. But it does remind me of that Onion article from, it's from like 2013 titled, Find the Thing You're Most Passionate About, Then Do It on Nights and Weekends for the Rest of Your Life. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, it's too true. It really is too true, in my opinion. Adam, do you have any thoughts on that? Hmm. Uh, I, I mean, to me, I, I think we're this, this question conflates a whole bunch of ideas. Um, the main one being what it means to have a dream to do something. Because uh, that doesn't have to be some massive, expansive thing, um, and even certain kinds of things, depending on the the skill sets involved, uh, it, it's very rare that when you go tackle a thing you want to be skilled at, that you do it from from ground zero, right? Because this whole arbitrary like ten thousand hours thing, the the point of that is lots of hours, uh, and for different people, just how many hours it takes to to be, and there's not like a switch. You're not just suddenly an expert, right? You're just developing expertise over time. The amount of time that it takes is going to depend a hell of a lot on your particular skill set, what you come in with, um, your approach to the problem in the first place. Because if you do it really ineffectively, then of course it's going to take a lot longer. Uh, so so the the broader point is you just need a bunch of time, <laughs> right? Well, here's uh, a question. But you though. can get away with a lot if the thing that you're trying to do doesn't require as much. So I bought a Razor scooter when I was in college and I still have it and it's fucking amazing. <laughs> Great way to get around. It's a good means of locomotion. You should use one of those I hoverboard can't. things so you could break your ass like everybody I've seen on YouTube. I no, seen man, I'm breaking, I'm breaking my ankles. With that's a scooter, you can break your ankles much more effectively. So that's kind of where <laughs> I'm leaning. Um, but I did this kind of goofy calculation where I was like, okay, this scooter is 80 bucks. And I'm going to do a cost-benefit analysis uh, because I was learning about cost-benefit analysis at, my, at the time. And I put a number on it to try to figure out how much time is this scooter going to save me? So I figured I can move about four times faster on the scooter on average than I can walking. So, And I'm walking for like 30 minutes a day to my various classes and stuff. Um, so I'm going to be saving X number of minutes per day. And then if I crunch that out over the course of an entire semester, you know, it comes out to so many hours. Right. And so I was kind of proudly explaining this to one of our uncles and I was like, Oh yeah, like I bought this scooter and it turns out it's going to save me this amount of time. And it, therefore I'm amortizing the $80 cost of the scooter over this many hours and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And he made a really, a really good point that for some reason it didn't occur to me at the time. And he was like, what can you do in eight minutes? Yep. Like he's like, yeah. you're saving, you're, you're not saving. Yeah. You didn't three... accumulate those to then spend on something else. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not like suddenly you have three more days of time. You just have a shitload of tiny, tiny chunks of time extra that. That you probably wasted every day. Yeah. You probably didn't do anything with because it's only eight minutes and what the hell can you do in eight minutes? You know, human beings tend <laughs> to operate in blocks of time and because we have to kind of like get mentally 
revved up and get our focus going. And yeah, I think uh, that is a much more worthwhile point than the whole like spreading it over time. Is that if if you're working on something, because if you're if you're spending your entire weekend doing stuff, doing these the, something that you want to become an expert in, right? You're just in it. That's a hell of a you're lot like, more effective than spending thirty minutes a day because those thirty minutes really aren't thirty minutes. Those thirty minutes are probably de- five. Depending on well, depending on the complexity <laughs> of the task, they're anywhere from roughly 30 minutes to, to yeah, to five. Cause there, there's going to be a ramp up and a ramp down time of getting your brain and gear to do that thing. And so the bigger chunk of time you can get, you're, you'd probably be much better off spending one day on your weekend than 30 day, 30, 30 minutes a day during the rest of the week. Just throughout the week. I mean, yeah. we used to, we used to have meetings. I remember we would have meetings, especially right after, right after Quadrupus launched. Uh, we suddenly needed to start talking to a lot of people because the game did did well enough that people were asking for interviews or just asking for review keys or whatever. And so we had a lot of these meetings. And then also local people in St. Louis were suddenly interested in what we were doing. And so we had meetings with tech people, with press people in the city that we would drive to and go do a thing. And I remember the first, I don't know if you remember this, Seth, but the first uh, like three weeks post-launch, we had just a spattering of meetings every day across yep. the whole workday. To the so point like 30 where, minutes here, 30 minutes there. Yeah, and we're actually going physically place. to these places most of the time too. And it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible because we ended up, because we also were trying to get a bunch of work done at the same time. And we just couldn't. We would get these, you'd get these little gaps like that, basically the scooter gap where you're like, sweet, all right, we got 16 minutes. Uh, can we, like, is there anything we could bang out? And the answer is always, no, no I can nope. send you, I can, <laughs> I'll send two emails, but that's the extent of, I don't even have time to think about the situation in this one email, which is more than a 18 minute thing for me to think about and do. Um, so I think there, there is a, a very good point there, which is that not all time is equal. Right. Yeah. Which is why my suggestion to people, whatever they're like, I want to go do a thing is always to do it in the morning. Do it first thing in the morning when, when you get fresh up or buy yourself, you know, get yourself an extra half hour or hour in the morning when nothing can interrupt you yet. Yeah. And it's just so much easier at the end of the day to be like, ah, well, I'm tired and, and yeah. the kids are home and haven't seen my wife all day. You know, it's much or easier to spend like, oh. an entire day on your weekend doing. Yeah. As your day gets closer to a close, you have more and more reasons to not do stuff. Oh yeah, the yeah. morning. But I've been talking about this enough. Jesus, yeah. let's go on questions. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus, quit making us talk about this stuff. All right. Uh, so the questions mm-hmm. for our podcast come from podcast.bscotch.net. You can ask a question if you got a bscotch ID, and you'll get a perk. Also, you can do it if you don't have one. You can just ask a question. You will get a perk. You but can ask it in your mission. You can do whatever you want. So just do your thing. Uh, today we're going to talk about first question is actually from Alan Falcon. Which is, between the three of you, what's the single most mind-blowing event you've personally been witness to? Personally? As discussed previously, I have no (laughs) recollection (laughs) of any of it. So I'll I'll let you guys answer this question. Thanks for uh, pointing out Adam's disability, Alan. It's really... (laughs) Well, we hadn't told him about him yet, so you know it's not true. Not totally. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm coming up empty on this. What What about you, Sam? What is? I think the wildest thing that I saw was I went to the Republic of Georgia my freshman year of college uh, during that summer for a school thing, and this is in the Caucasus Mountains. This is in Eastern Europe, and we're running around there, and we got off of the subway. 
and we came out of the subway tunnel and there was a dude who was just like chilling in his car and a policeman ran up, opened the door, threw him out of the car and then started hitting him with with his stick. And with his, his cop and like, stick. His cop stick. And it was me and three other or four other students. And I mean, I had never, of course, you've seen that stuff on TV before. You know, people getting hit by, well, anybody. I haven't really seen, like, I haven't actually seen, I realized at that point, actual physical violence in a serious way being done in front of me. You know, like within my person. Um, so that was, that was a really uncomfortable sort of like, oh, this is, this is real. You know, this is, when you see this happening to people, this is what it looks and feels like if you're around. And then we ran, we ran away. We ran back in the subway. That was probably the right move. So what was, I mean, it was mind blowing. What was mind blowing about it? Uh, I, I think when you have that, that shift from it's it's like when you understand that the media that you've been consuming about a particular subject isn't just pictures on the television, you know. And I think like th- this happens yeah. a lot nowadays. Those are where, people, yeah, yeah. They're like those are hu- humans who a while ago, you know, usually if it's in video form, uh, like this was actively happening to. Or even I mean, you see stuff like really beautiful pictures of landscapes and stuff all over the internet. But the truth is, if you go, if you actually go to that place with your body, uh, it's a very different experience. And I think that was that. That was that sort of uh, that schism for me as I realized that, you know, the stuff that you're reading about, the stuff you're seeing about uh, is very different when you experience it bodily than if you're just kind of taking it in either visually or, you know, some other way. Hmm. What about people who go to places like, you know, the Grand Canyon or whatever, these really, really scenic places, but they spend most of the time looking at it through the screen of right, their smartphones. Right, they smart convert phones. it into a <laughs> two-dimensional... So they can take pictures. <laughs> this sort of makes me sad at, at concerts, if you go to a concert. And like, yeah, people, people are just holding, holding up, up iPads and I'm like, you're, you're like, it looks like a cookie sheet, you know, like it's big enough that it's just like a big cookie sheet <laughs> and they're watching the concert through that thing. And yeah, it makes me sad because I'm like, I feel like you're not like, you're, just, you're not I mean, there. You might as well I watch a damn YouTube video. Yeah, yeah. If I do that, I know I'm not, I, it doesn't feel the same. You're just, you're really archiving cool. the experience to not look at it in the future instead of just enjoying the experience <laughs> while, <laughs> while you're there. Right. I wonder if this is why I, I, the thing is like now, now that I know about my whole visual memory thing, it makes me sort of question my own internal motives for all of my behaviors and stuff. And one of those is that I don't give a fuck about pictures, like even a little bit. Uh, I have no photo archives of just about anything. I don't keep pictures of people. Like, like I just. But see, to me, this is weird because you go the other way. Well, maybe though, right? But but when I because like what happens when you look at a picture where you like you know you look at a picture of an event for example because question because for you what that probably does is it causes that event to be conjured into your mind and then you like can remember bits and pieces of it and like remember maybe a sequence of events. For me, I'm just like, oh, this uh, is just a picture of an event, right? Right? It yeah, doesn't. It doesn't transport me back there. Yeah, it's the same as that idea of subvocalizing a phone number repeatedly so you can remember it. Right? If you see a picture of something, it's it uh, refreshes. It'll just trigger it brings, everything. It, yeah, it brings yeah. that memory back to the surface. But right. if you just don't have a memory, but if I don't have the it, surface, then yeah, then, then what's <laughs> you're just like, what is this? Mm, what's the point? Yeah, I wonder. Weird. All right. Next question comes from Frog Ninja. This one better be less serious. Jesus. Uh, what are Metroid, we doing? Metroidvanias. Love them or hate them? Let's talk about it. Uh, somebody tell me what the fuck is a Metroidvania? That's a good question. I don't know, Seth. Um, as far as I understand, a Metroidvania is a video game that is a typically a 2D platformer. So side view with lots of gravity and shit like that. 
And it mostly involves uh, exploring or doing stuff in order to find or unlock new capabilities that allow you to backtrack in some way and access new areas that were previously inaccessible. Would that make Ori in the Blind Forest a Metroidvania? Yep. Yes. Okay. Nailed it. Love them, hate them. Let's talk about it. Uh, I think we've talked about this in the past. I think hating on a genre is always the wrong move. And I think the, the good example here is if, if you were to... Because what this genre does is it makes Metroid, presumably, uh, and Ori in the Blind Forest the same game. Or collapses them under the same header, right? Mm-hmm. And True. if you played both of those games, they don't feel they don't feel anything alike, even though, yeah, they, they share that similarity in, in the gameplay style. So, I don't know. I would say is I it love Ori in the Blind Forest. Yeah, is it? I think it's called a Metroidvania because it's sort of both the original Metroid and, and Castlevania. Also, yeah, Castlevania. They yeah. both had that yeah. same... But I think it's it's weird to define an entire genre by this because like in a lot of ways, Pokemon is a Metroidvania because there's a point where you see a tree yeah. and you're like, it is. what is that? I can't get through there. And then later you get cut and you're like, oh, now I can go there. Right. I mean, is, is the thing that defines a Metroidvania just, I think it's the, the ability. Yeah. The ability to go back and get to a spot that you previously couldn't get to. Cause I otherwise mean, I, I'm going to read about it on Wikipedia real quick. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's, that's the defining feature to me. Cause that's a pretty weak, uh, defining element. Well, I mean, it's, it's exploration that requires backtracking at the end of like that's the thing. Yeah, that's that's yeah, basically but why what is that, says too. Yeah, like why is that a thing that defines an entire genre when it's like <laughs> such a tiny piece of I don't know, man. Humans are always like, I want to put stuff in a box. Could you put this in a box? I guess it's the same as the idea of the, the well, roguelike. Or a platformer. Right? Like yeah. platformer to me is the most hilarious and worst uh just description of a game because it just means you jump. That's all it means. It just means you jump a bunch of times. <laughs> Well, but on platforms. No, well, there yeah, is. but anything is a platform if you have to jump on it, right? So it's like whether it's the ground or actual platforms or some more interesting representation of those things. It's just you jump it on stuff, and that's how you get around in a in the world. But that that fact, except for in something like Super Mario Brothers, where that's how you interact with everything is by jumping on it. Uh, but in lots of other games, like that that yeah, that's how you get around. But it's not that's not the point of the yeah, game. Yeah, it's not the point of the game. The point of the game isn't jumping around. Uh, it just seems like such a silly way to to collapse a series of of diverse entities. Well, yeah, that's probably true of yeah, pretty much every genre. <laughs> Or every first-person shooter, which I guess stereotype there is. We can we can simply answer this question then in saying we love some of them and dislike to hate others. But I personally, as far as like backtracking, I personally not a big fan backtracking. Yeah, just my own thing. (laughs) So I generally hate them. I played Ori the Blind Forest for a while. God damn, the game's beautiful. But yeah, backtracking not a thing I enjoy. I agree. As soon as I had to backtrack, I stopped playing. Yeah, I was like, oh, yep, now i got to walk for two minutes to go find this room with the thing in it that I saw earlier. Yeah, it's because yeah, the area that you previously went through was interesting the first time because there were enemies and challenges in it. Now it's just boring and empty. Now it's just a time sink that you have to... And you have to remember where it was, so now you have to like have this constant register of memory that's getting filled up with all the things that you didn't get to experience. Metroidvanias, God. Sam hates them. In retrospect, I guess... If a Metroidvania is purely defined as you having to go back to places you've already been <laughs> in a more boring way than it was the first time, then just to fan. get to the next level, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, right, so next- a Metroidvania is a level-based game where there's a really, really long, boring part in between each level. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I don't know if you yeah. noticed, and I, I so I was playing Fallout. <laughs> I, I was playing Fallout Four over the weekend. I noticed this with the it's new also Wild a Metroidvania. Too. Yeah, there's a lot of yes. that, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> An interesting note is if you look at their level design, like inside buildings and stuff, and this is true with uh, the new WoW dungeons and things, is usually now they build them such that when you they go loop, to leave, back. yeah, you actually loop all the way back right to the entrance. So like the final boss fight takes place somewhere where then you like jump on a ledge or jump into a, a hole or something and it just drops you right where like the beginning of the, of the dungeon was. Yeah. Because... That walk back for 10 fucking just minutes through a labyrinth, just the worst, just the worst. Especially thing. when <laughs> you're basically overweight because of all the shit you're carrying. And so then every time you step and find something that you already threw down, you're like, oh, should I pick this thing up and throw something else out of my inventory? Yep. Yeah. I will say though, Sam, that that you're you're actually thinking of a of a of a different time in WoW back when you walked. Yeah. Uh, now yeah, you just now you just teleport back out of the dungeon. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's not a yeah. thing anymore. But uh, right. the, the idea is there. Next question <laughs> comes from Nils0077, who asks, Hey guys, what's your opinion hey. on missable achievements or perks in games? And are any of those in your games? So in other words, I'm assuming missable doesn't mean like the player can just overlook it, but rather that they get somehow locked out of getting it. Yeah, I think like the idea here is that you can't you can't get it for some reason so for example if we had like an early access perk or something like if you bought the game in the first week then you got some other cool thing and then if you didn't then go deal with it because you didn't give it a long time i like them because i think they are a lot of players have this idea that for some reason they should get to have everything uh just because they want it and i don't think you should i think if you (laughs) If you were there the whole time and were supporting the game from the beginning and were an Uber fan and did everything and bought the early access and, you know, did all the bosses on the hardest mode before they got nerfed or whatever, um, you know, sure, you can have an achievement. For I that. have a different take on this. <laughs> Because, because here's the thing. Like, I I agree on the like the first blush with with that idea. However, uh, when a person a person who's got really into a game before it came out and was involved in the whole process and so on, they got to do that because they knew about it and got the chance to be excited about it. Now take a new fan of the game after it launches who'd never heard of your studio or your game or whatever. Your game launches and of course there's a lot of hype and so they they get in on it and now they're so excited by your studio and your games that they want to have like absolutely everything to do with it and basically are now bummed that they missed out on the opportunity to do all that cool stuff and unlock all those fun rewards and so on yeah but but as long as you <laughs> as long as you present more opportunities for them to get in on other things that people in the future won't be able to come back to and get right um, then they still get to get that feeling of, you know, being in at the ground level or whatever. I, so I'm thinking about uh, the, you know, Vanilla WoW, the Gates of Ankaraj event. There was this special mount that one person on the server could get. And it was associated with this one time event that would only ever happen one day on each server forever as the only time it would happen. And if you saw that that person walking around on that mount, it was it was magical blowing. Yeah. So I guess maybe to answer Alan Falcon's question, uh, <laughs> the most mind blowing thing I ever saw was <laughs> somebody walking around on that mount because. But it, it but I mean, okay, wait. for me, the only disappointing thing about it was that that kind of thing never happened again, you know, and it was super cool to see it. And I knew that I would never get to be a part of it because I wasn't that involved in it. But at the same time, it was really impressive and interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, other people. So like that's cool, idea. though, but that's part of like that's the history within the game, right? Where, where the game has one off events that players who are there for the event get to participate in. And in principle, those kinds of events could continue to happen in the future. Right. When you yeah. have a standalone game that just is the way it is, which is most games, including ours. Uh, and, and you I have a solution for you. Huh? 
which is you do cycled cycled ones. So rather than having achievements be permanent, permanently missable, which is what Seth's talking about, and which I think is totally awesome for games that have ongoing development cycles, like something like an MMO or any multiplayer content. Uh, what you do is you perform cycled events. So think about a holiday. A holiday is your classic cy- cycling event, right? Where yeah. every single year at the same time it happens, it has the same theme, same ridiculous stuff, maybe some extra ridiculous stuff, especially in games. Um, yeah, a lot and of if you're around, yeah, because it's fun and it's unique. And if you get something during that week, uh, I mean, like the value of that thing is really high, right? Because it's actually super rare on the general time scale of the game. Uh, it's a symbol you were around. And then if someone wants to get it, they can still get it. They'll just have to wait till next year. You know? <laughs> right. Or actually, right. Or so actually come to the possible. next event. Well, yeah. in, a, in a more I abstract sense, good. if someone's really into your studio, if if you have like a early early backer or early access or beta testing or whatever kinds of rewards, if those aren't game specific, so that, or, or I mean, the reward itself could be game specific, but the getting of that achievement could be generic so that if, if I was a beta tester of Crashlands, I would get it. And then I would never be able to be a beta tester of Crashlands again and also get it. But the next game launch, or you know, is getting ready to release. If you're a beta tester in that game, you would also get the other rewards for beta testing games. Okay, let me ask you this. Yeah. Let me what? let me slap you with a hypothetical. Okay. Situation. Okay. So we make a game. Okay. The game has. It's not very hypothetical yet. Continue. It has boss fights in it. Okay. And it is a gear-based game where, or or level based. It's an RPG of some sort. Um, meaning it's possible for the player to get stronger just through, you know, the sheer numbers that their character produces, uh, thereby making lower level content obsolete. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we have a, the game is in a, essentially a static place where, and we have a bunch of achievements in it where, you know, if you defeat this one particular boss in under one minute or something, you get this super, super crazy awesome achievement that gives you an amazing item or something. Um, Then we release the expansion to the game, which adds a new tier of content, allowing players to get much, much stronger. Uh, This is getting real specific, but okay. Yeah. So the, so the people who defeated that boss when it was actually a challenge, do you feel like their achievement is being taken away from them by now allowing everybody to just go one shot that boss shortly after the expansion comes out? Because uh, I mean, super powerful. That just sounds like a design failure on the part of the developers. Yeah. In, I mean, in your hypothetical game that you just developed in your mind, I'd say you fucked it up. Okay. That's, fair. I mean, I'd say, I would say, as yes I've seen this no. happen a lot in, yeah, I mean, in a lot of RPG stuff. Well, games. that's kind of the classic problem with adding additional content, right? Is that you have to make previous content invalid in an RPG, right? Because you can just run around and one shot things, which if, by it, the way, yeah. Assuming the players get more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It is, but it's actually very fun to do as a thing. Um, so I think the, again, it comes down to a time thing where it's like, if I got the achievement the week before that patch came out and it took me like three months to do, and then the next day, you know, some scamps goes in there and it just whacks him with his new fancy mace, kills it. Then yeah, I'd be like, well, this, my achievement means nothing now. But if I did it like a year before that, you know, it's kind of a time, I guess it's, it's, a, it's always just a time question where if it's been, if, if I got to bask in the how long, yeah, how long have you gotten right. to be proud of yourself? That's, that's <laughs> what, that's the question. I think that's the very important question. Yeah. To me, this is just a design problem. 
this isn't a problem about like whether a thing should be given as an achievement and then invalidated in the future once the condition it should just be if you think it's important for the player to view defeating that boss as an achievement it should never feel like anything less than an achievement Ooh, achievements I have an idea. themselves as an as a as a, like a tack on thing completely aside i have an idea so the, so to me really the problem is with calling something an achievement yeah because if you get a hammer that just one shots a boss and you just walk up to it and do that there is no you've achieved nothing you've achieved nothing right so so what it should be is that anything that is a, a, a i don't know what you'd call it a perk a, oh you turn off the an award for yeah ah. so basically you get credit for having done it but you don't get to list it as one of your achievements if that makes sense mm, it's not because yeah. it's not one it's just not an achievement right, right. i mean let's you be real jack shit <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You leveled like up. The end. It's a no cool. it's a no achievement. Alright, we're gonna end with two quick questions. First one from FB Gaming. Do you think you will answer this question? Nope. Nope. Next one from Kakachan 2. Would you ever consider recording your farts and using one of the sounds as a sound effect for a character in a game of yours that, that you made? Uh his second sentence is I just did a pretty rad fart that would have been an amazing character set. <laughs> The most so. interesting part of this question is that he farted, and then his immediate thought was, this would be a great character sound. I wonder what abominable uh, noise. <laughs> what <laughs> what I'm actually the most interested in here is the phrasing he used, which is not that I farted, but that I just did a rad <laughs> fart. <laughs> How do you do a rad fart? What does that even mean? Well, well, you wouldn't say Uh, I just radly farted or I just farted pretty rad, you know? I I farted pretty radly, though. It sounded amazing. Uh, I think it's a good did place a, to wrap did it up. A, he did right. a red fart. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to Coffee with Butterscotch. This has been episode number 50. If you want to get in on any podcast action, go to podcast.bscotch.net. Otherwise, everything else is at butterscotch-shenanigans.com. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.